0: It's not just our opinion, Angela, around how we see our patients being more motivated. It's also translated in the scientific literature that people are more motivated to make a change when they're given dietary recommendations through a regulated healthcare professional about their genetics. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need To break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body, and lifestyle.
1: Hi, friends. We have a fun episode for you today all about genetics. And I'm sitting down with Rachel Clarkson, who is also known as the DNA dietitian. Um, She's a nutrigenomic dietitian and university lecturer on a mission to free you from the guesswork around what you should be eating. Very similar mission, in fact, to my own. As many of you regular listeners of the podcast will know, I think that before you embark on any kind of nutritional program or plan, you absolutely should be looking at your genetics. And it is in fact the foundation of my own program, Live Younger Longer. Um, You can and find out so much information through your DNA and really understand how to customize your nutritional program to set you up for the best health and longevity. And Rachel and I talk about this in detail in today's podcast episode. We talk about the different gene variants um, that are actionable in terms of your diet and lifestyle modifications that you can make. And we talk about exactly how you can do this and the ones to look out for. So I think you're going to be Really enjoying today's episode if you're interested at all in optimizing the expression of your genetics. We also talk about some of the concerns that I've had raised to me in the past by clients around whether knowing that you have a certain type of gene, whether that actually could in any way adversely activate that in some way, because it causes you anxiety. Um, something that Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about is about actually signaling new genes to work in new ways. And so we dive into the world of epigenetics as well, because really that is what we really want to achieve here is the ultimate outcome is that we optimize our epigenetic expression. Our our DNA DNA is like the software program that we're running on. What we want to do is upgrade that and enhance the expression of that as much as we possibly can to really get the best health outcome results. And in this podcast episode, we talk all about that. We share some of my own DNA results so you can start to understand the kind of changes that you can make. So I'm really thrilled to introduce you today To Rachel Clarkson. Um, She makes it really easy to digest. It's very simple. So it's an easy listen, but it will give you a huge amount of detail. And as always, if you want to listen along with show notes, go over to my website, angelafosterperformance.com forward slash podcast. You can download the show notes there. You can also listen with transcripts. So it saves you taking notes as you go along. and you can also watch it if you'd rather watch this episode on my new youtube channel which again is on angela foster performance but let me now introduce you to rachel clarkson So I am absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Rachel Clarkson, who is a board-certified specialist dietitian in the science of nutrigenomics. Rachel is known as the DNA dietitian, and she has a Harley Street practice um, where she empowers her patients to eat according to their genes using her method, the DNA way. She has published research in epigenetics, and she currently sits on the scientific advisory board of a number of health apps and guest lectures For the Nutrition and Genetic MSc at St Mary's University in London. Rachel is passionate about science communication and has been featured in BBC Future, The Guardian and Men's Health. It's so lovely to have you here today Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me Angela yeah this is going to be fun because we share a common interest here in genetics and the power of really understanding your DNA and what impact that can have in helping people make changes um, positive changes to their health um, so let's let's start with there might be some people listening actually who've never heard or don't really understand what DNA is they've heard about it but that's probably a good place to start is just explaining a bit about genetics and epigenetics, um, just to sort of clarify for people, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a
0: question that I always get asked in clinic or maybe on social media, you know, what is genetics and what are the different subcategories in the world of genetics? Because it sounds quite complicated, but it can be simplified. As you all know, you also practice in the area. So DNA is that genetic code that tells our body, what to do, what it should be. It, it codes for the proteins, and it's almost like a, a, a user manual of your body, a roadmap, I like to say sometimes, of how your body will function on the inside and also how it will look on the outside. So, if you imagine we're all looking different on the outside, so we're all going to function very differently on the inside based upon our genetic ma- makeup and variations. So, you're absolutely right. Epigenetics is a really fantastic area of genetics. And we were just talking before we got on actually about the power of, um, of, of epigenetics when it comes to lifestyle and really um, motivating someone to create that change in their diet or lifestyle to turn those good genes on and those bad genes off. So you actually have um, a greater chance of living a longer and healthier life. So epigenetics is really a fantastic field. It's a, um, really upcoming area of science. And, you know, as you just mentioned in my kind, uh, little intro, I published uh, research in epigenetics when I was just starting out at King's and yeah, I love it, but that's definitely where my, my practice kind of ends in that area, because even though I'm trying to create healthy changes to enable people to live longer, healthier lives, um, there's not really much we can do specifically, um, because we don't know too much in around what, can turn good genes on and um, turn bad genes off, other than that really um, healthy lifestyle bias around sleeping well, getting those, you know, quality hours of sleeping, resting, not, you know, actually being able to manage stress quite well, moving our bodies and obviously eating that diet that's so rich in nutrients and you know i've heard you you speak on other podcasts with other experts and they go really deep into into those areas um, around what that healthy diet also looks like um, what I'm doing is the other side of the coin, which is the nutrigenomics, which is really looking at those specific variations in your DNA that alter the way that you actually process the, the nutrients that you take in by a food, drink, supplements, for example, and then actually pull out those actionable um, recommendations that can improve your overall nutritional status or nutrition status, health status, make you feel better, make you hopefully live longer (laughs) with less disease. And also let's be honest, manage weight because that's what everyone wants to do.
1: Yeah. Especially post lockdown. I think pretty much everyone I'm speaking to, no matter how good shape they're in still feels that there is an element of improvement that could happen. Um, Yeah, I mean, I love that. We were talking before the show, weren't we, just about my own experience with kind of altering my epigenetic expression. And um, when you've got personal experience of it, I think you realize how powerful that really is. And sometimes I get people say to me they are concerned that if they find out their genetics, they might feel that they're gonna trigger a gene through anxiety. So I've had people reach out to me and say, "You know, I've been following Dr. Joe Dispenza's work and he talks about signaling new genes in new ways. Do you think that if I find out that I'm at risk of a certain type of disease, that somehow that anxiety in and around that could then trigger the expression of that gene? And I have my own kind of answer, I guess, but I'm really curious about what you think about that, Rachel.
0: So there are some people who can't wait to get their hands on information about what they're predisposed to when it comes to diseases. And then you've got the other people who, when presented with this information, become extremely anxious and unnerved about the um, potential of them actually getting this disease in the future and so i think it's a really fair point around will the anxiety and upset and stress that's caused within the body and let's be honest it's probably going to be more a chronic um stress and anxiety once you once you find this out you know could it turn that gene on we don't know, um, and, and that's the thing about it. We just don't know with epigenetics um, what genes are turned on 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 or off depending on what um, what kind of um, trigger you 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 put into the mix. And I think that comes all down to the fact that when we're investigating this in a lab, it really would mean that you would have to take biopsies of all different parts of the body to be able to understand um, those particular genes and how, you know, they are turned on or off. So my answer is, I don't know. And I don't think that anyone knows. And I think that talking about predispositions to certain diseases is, is just one of those things that as you probably know is a really sensitive topic and it's a it's a time for the practitioner to discuss with the patient about you know potential risk but also being really clear about the fact that we don't have any clear, Definitive risk when it comes to these predispositions, it's just a it's a relative risk, and I think that a lot of these um, a lot of these diseases that we're predisposed to, we don't actually have that definitive answer, and so unless it's a really rare metabolic disease, we don't have those exact. Um, exact answers around that. So it's just about being really careful and kind with those individuals, as I'm sure you are. It's not something that I do in, in my clinic because I don't feel like I have that genetic counseling ability. Um, I'm not trained in that area. That's why I, I just stick to the nutrigenomics, which is just giving that those actionable recommendations around someone's personalized requirements.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I I focus on the lifestyle and the nutrition factors. The testing company that I use actually have a genetic counselor. So there's always an appointment um, automatically when they buy the test that they can get counseling if they need it. Um, But I find that for me, I guess the way I would approach it is it's empowering. So one of the ones that people seem nervous, I guess, is the Alzheimer's gene, because there seems to be a fairly strong correlation between APOE4 and and the development. But then for me, I actually have one copy of that and reading about it and looking at the work of people like Dr. Dale Bredesen, I found actually really empowering because it has made me pay attention to one of the, you know, you were talking about sleep there. That was definitely one of the areas that I completely overlooked as a lawyer and ultimately led to the burnout I experienced now Knowing that it's so, so critical to health and particularly brain health, that's something that I prioritize. And I think that, you know, I think he features in his book specifically on that gene that if you have and you may may have a different view on this, but his research seems to indicate that if you have APOE3, which most people have, you're at about 9% risk. But if you have one copy of APOE4, your risk goes up to about 30%. For me, that is isn't, and obviously it's, it's increased if you have two copies, but for me, actually knowing that has meant that decades before, which is the important part, I can take steps to limit that ever actually taking place. Whereas had I not known that information, maybe I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing. You know, maybe I wouldn't prioritize things like omega-3 and oily fish and take, you know, things that reduce inflammation and enhance brain function and optimize my sleep. So I kind of see it as you're empowered with information. It's a bit like you can ignore your bank balance, but it wouldn't change things if you did. Do you know what I mean? It's, It's better to face up to things sometimes, I think.
0: I love that. I think it's really powerful what you just said, which is finding out more information about yourself and how that actually motivated you to take more informed measures when it comes to your health, specifically around, like you said, your brain health and preventing that cognitive decline. So I think there has to be, um, you know, some, some sense in, in that absolutely and 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 like you said you're you're talking from your personal experience and how powerful that was for you when making those day-to-day choices like you said around the oily fish around sleep things that we just take for granted so that's fantastic that you had that experience. Um, I, I I do like to bring it up around, you know, predisposition and, and percentages. You just mentioned, you know, those genes gave 10%. If you had a couple of them, it was 30%. And I think that is something to consider as well. Like when we talk about the BRCA1 gene, for example, with, with breast cancer and, you know, if, well, we all know Angelina Jolie, she tested positive for that, and she took the precaution around removing both of her breasts for, for that as a precautionary measure. And, you know, when we think about the genetics, the BRCA1, very similarly, only really accounts for 10% of breast cancer cases. And so when people were going out and then getting themselves tested, if they, for example, didn't test positive for BRCA1, they almost had a sense of, um, you know, they were comforted by the fact that they didn't have it, so that they thought that they couldn't get breast cancer. Mm. And so that's almost like false information because you know, you know, we both know that BRCA1 is, is only 10% of uh, breast cancer cases. The other 90% are other genetic factors, other lifestyle factors. So I think that even though you had a really great experience knowing that you had it, it's almost like if people don't, you know, if they get the all clear with these genes, they almost have the reverse kind of mm, effect and they point, and yeah. they, and they think that they're safe, and so that they don't have to think about, for example, their alcohol consumption, because even though alcohol causes breast cancer, I don't have BRCA1.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually, because I think people can feel, as you say, feel comforted. So Rachel and I have been talking a lot about genetics there. And if you're interested in finding out more, I just want to interrupt today's show to tell you about a free masterclass series that I am running at the moment. It's a four-part video series all about how to optimize the expression of your genetics so you can really start to get a feel as to the kind of changes that you can make to set yourself up for optimization. Health and longevity, and you can access that at this web address. Just go to bit.ly forward slash longevity masterclass. That's bit.ly forward slash longevity masterclass. It's completely free. Um, it's a four-part video series where I take you through different areas of genetics and really teach you how you can optimize these things. Um, so you can sign up there, it's it's um, running for a limited time at the moment, and that's over at bit.ly forward slash longevity. Masterclass. Now let's get back to Rachel. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, it, on, on the research that you've seen, just talking about BRCA1, like with, um, and just generally in terms of breast cancer, obviously we are seeing huge increases in it. Um, and, and you obviously dive deep into the research. Is that alcohol seems to play a part, but nobody's done any research, as far as I can see, on the difference between types of alcohol. So, for example, you know, there is a huge difference between drinking a glass of biodynamic organic red, in my opinion, that has polyphenols and has resveratrol and other cancer-protecting compounds than a £1.99, I don't even know if you can buy it for that, you know, from your local co-op that is full of chemicals because I realise that there is a link between alcohol But then what about all of the other chemicals that go into a really cheap bottle of wine um, that can also presumably cause cancer? Um, And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's very hard to pinpoint it on any one thing. Absolutely. And that is what is so complex
0: about nutritional sciences. And when we think about research, it's almost impossible to get that information regarding what quality of alcohol someone is consuming versus their risk of developing breast cancer. So it would never really be a causation. We could never say that maybe there would be a correlation, but how hard would that study be to be able to put that together? Because there'd be so much, so many other different factors. For example, an individual who is drinking some really good quality organic wine is most probably also going to have very different dietary patterns to, and lifestyle patterns and health, um, so that sort of those health choices, than someone who is buying that £1.99 bottle of wine um, from you know wherever, they're going to be two completely different mm-hmm. lifestyles when it comes to health. So I think that that's really really hard to to achieve, and and also I think that you know alcohol is definitely a a problem and a real predictor or at least your intake of alcohol is a really strong predictor of, of something like breast cancer that, you know, I'm all about good quality wine. I love my wine, but also you've got to, you've got to kind of weigh up the, the benefits, because if you're thinking about things from a cardiovascular point of view, then of course, you know, the antioxidants, the polyphenols are going to be fantastic to support that healthy lifestyle. But if you're predisposed to breast cancer, or if you've got a lot of breast cancer in the family, for example, or it's just on the top of your priority list, then you're probably not going to be wanting to, you know, drink alcohol, you know, as, as you would normally. And then you know, the topic arises around how much of the polyphenol do you actually need to see a desired effect within the body? And then it's like, well, how much wine do you have to drink for that? And then it gets really complicated. (laughs) And so I'm sure that, you know, some people will get super excited about the fact that they have to drink, you know, a certain amount to be able to receive or to be able to take in the amount of, of polyphenol that they require. But yeah, it's a really interesting area. And it's just one of those things that, you know, you and me, we both know that the better quality produce that we can buy better, the more nutrient dense it's going to be. But then you've also got to consider the fact that not everybody can afford that. And so what do we do? It's a really tough one.
1: Yeah, it is, and as you say, there are many downsides to alcohol. So I was kind of using that as, I guess, an example just to show that people haven't really looked at the differences. Because I've, I'd had a, I'd been to see my um, gynecologist not long ago, just because I have endometriosis and he, uh, he's an oncologist and he was saying that he had noticed a drink between, uh, he, you know, obviously he specializes in gynecological cancer and he has seen a huge growth. He was like, we've never been busier all the way through Corona as well through the COVID pandemic. And that, you know, women were definitely drinking more and breast cancer and ovarian cancer seem to be going up, but then also, um, their weight was also going up. And that's the thing, isn't it? As you say, it's so complex because I think alcohol obviously is bad and I'm not a big drinker myself. However, um, it is, you tend to eat more because it stimulates your appetite. And so obesity is also a risk factor for cancer, isn't it? And I think it is difficult. Um, So what are some of the genes, just for people listening, that you specifically look at in terms of optimizing people's um, nutrition and their longevity? What are some of the key ones that you think people benefit from knowing about?
0: That's a really good question. And when we're thinking about these specific genes, you know, you mentioned before, or maybe it was before we started recording about SNPs, and that's what it's really looking at. We're, we're looking at specific SNPs that can identify how you're process, processing certain nutrients. And maybe certain nutrients almost have a real body of research around them so that we have, you know, more than one SNP. So then we get almost like a um, a. Pre, a, a, a algorithm of SNPs, which is also really exciting. So different nutrients have different variations of these SNPs that alter one's response. So I look at a number of, of SNPs when it comes to nutrient metabolism to understand how someone absorbs, metabolizes, Utilizes and actually transports and excretes nutrients. And then we look deeper into other SNPs that alter someone's response to certain nutrients surrounding cardiometabolic health. So, how does, for example, um, you know, if we're thinking about specifically, how does your variation of the ACE gene alter your? blood pressure response to sodium ingestion. So how does salt in food cause your blood pressure to rise? And is that a risk factor for you developing something like hypertension and therefore cardiovascular disease in the future? Um, if we're thinking about how are you metabolizing caffeine, we'd be looking at specifically the CYP1A2 gene and, and, and what variation of that do you have, which will alter your metabolism of caffeine, which will alter your requirements or let's say your safe limits that, you know, if you don't adhere to will lead to or may, let's say, um, may lead to a twofold increase of something like a a heart attack or even a fourfold increase of something like a heart attack in some cases. You know, those slow metabolizers who are drinking more than four cups of coffee a day, they really are quadrupling their, their risk. It's really scary. So really very specific. And that's kind of around health. And then I look at certain when it comes to someone's response to diet for body composition and weight loss. So for example, are we looking at the FTO gene for your variation of how you're going to respond to a high protein diet? Um, How are you going to respond to carbohydrates and fats, the different types of fats when it comes to weight loss and body composition? So it's really, really a fun diverse and rich area to find out more about your specific requirements to nutrients but let's be honest we don't eat nutrients we eat food so the conversation in my consultations is around food obviously I point out areas um, that are important to the individual but it's a conversation around food at the end of the day because that's what we're thinking about on a
1: day-to-day basis Yes, absolutely. Um, So in relation to the FTO gene, that's also quite an interesting one, because I can share that as well. I I wasn't given the best set of genetics, I think, by my parents. I have two copies of, of the FTO, which I think is rather rudely dubbed the fatso gene, isn't it? Sometimes it's, that's how it's referred actually the fat mass and obesity gene. Exactly. And I've had some people call it the fatso gene, um, which, which are, of which I have two copies. I haven't actually had to struggle myself with obesity. You were mentioning there about protein. Have you found that people with that, uh, genotype actually benefit from a higher protein diet to kind of enhance Things like blood glucose sensitivity um, and, and muscle mass, or what have you found? So we know, and actually it
0: was Harvard that actually first looked into this, this variant around one's response to high protein diets and the FTO gene. And they found that if you have the AA variation, or let's say in real terms, the AA genotype of the FTO gene, you are more likely to respond well to a high protein diet versus a low to moderate protein diet when it comes to fat loss. And those who didn't have the AA variation actually didn't really have any enhanced weight loss response at all. So those individuals would not benefit from a high protein diet. So all of those high protein products out there and the idea that protein is a free food, so we can eat as much of it as we want. uh, It does not work for those individuals. So again, it's a, it's, it's, it's a really fun gene and you know, it's,
1: it's just more actionable, really information that one can get. So, just so to clarify, because people won't know what the variants mean there, do you mean that somebody who is more vulnerable to obesity because of their FTO variant will benefit from a higher protein diet? Whereas somebody who's less vulnerable to weight gain, perhaps actually putting them on a high protein diet doesn't make a huge difference to body composition.
0: That's a really great point, Angela, and I'm really glad that you brought it up. I usually do talk about this at the beginning of any sort of podcast that I'm on. And, and you just touched on the fact that does the gene predict obesity and, and make you more likely to be obese? And, and and so the area of nutrigenomics is not predicting obesity. It's not predicting someone's likelihood to be um, overweight, although we know that the FTO gene is sort of predictive to a lot of people, depending on the variations. And when I talk about variations, I'm talking about the variation of the gene that someone possesses. So you either have this variation, that variation, or this one. So even just think of it as colors, like you either have the pink, the blue, or the green variation of the FTO gene. Mm -hmm. And depending on those variations that you hold, you process the nutrient differently or specifically to this area around protein, we know that the AA variation, let's call it the blue one, um, if you possess that one, then we know that you have higher satiating effects to protein in the diet. So you're more likely to feel satisfied, you're more likely to not overeat. And we think that's why that individual will have these enhanced responses to, to fat loss. So it's not necessarily that if you are overweight or if you are obese, you need to do this with high protein diet. It really is about whether you are obese, overweight, or even normal weight. How do you want to how, how can you best optimize your body composition, finding out your variation of that
1: FTO gene? And what do you actually need to do with your diet? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about a higher protein diet there, what kind of protein levels do you, um, do you mean? Um, because there's obviously a huge variation as well when people talk about higher protein as to what that level would be. Um, what kind of amounts of protein in relation to body weight are you thinking of there?
0: Such a good point. And also, you know, Protein requirements differ depending on your physical activity, your disease state, but if we're just thinking about a healthy individual, okay, who's wanting to lose weight, then we have to think about, well, at least I think about it as a sort of calculation. So how many grams of protein per kilo of body weight? And so a high protein diet for me in practice, when I'm thinking about what variation of a high, you know, if they have this AA variant of the FTO gene, it will be based around 1.8 1.8 grams per kilo of body weight per day. That would probably be, that would really suffice. Whereas when we think about protein portions these days, they are really quite big. You know, a woman, for example, only requires what I think it's like oh, th- three to four ounces of protein at each meal, which is around 90 to 115 grams. You know, we're having double that
1: easy. Even like an eight-ounce steak, which people in the restaurant would say is quite small. Um, yeah, and that's already double. And you can't absorb it all, that's the thing, can you?
0: A hundred percent. So actually, those people would probably do really well on that higher protein diet, but the majority they don't need that. And when we think when we're thinking about prevalence of these variations as well, it's only one in five people who have this, this variation that they need more protein in their diets. And I think that's, what's really powerful when I'm working with my clients, I'm able to identify what variations they have. So what should they be
1: eating? Mm. Yeah, that's exactly what I find. And it just um, really helps them, um, as you say, to customize it and to get the results. And I think also we were talking before about adherence, and I think that makes a huge difference as well. I think that when people suddenly see, right, okay, so this is what it looks like. Now I really understand that. Um, I also find like even, for example, tracking things with clients can make them even more adherent to to the program. So, for example, if somebody has like a higher sensitivity genetically to carbohydrates, and they are looking to lose weight or they've had blood sugar issues, I quite often say to them, just put the freestyle Libra on for two weeks and see what happens because stress also plays a huge part. And I think when they start to see what happens with their blood sugar, they're quite often they're amazed actually at the effects that things like stress, caffeine, lack of sleep are all having on their blood sugar variability as well, because it's not just obviously down to food, is it? Um, so I find that it's quite a useful platform for them to see, okay, this is where my genetics are now. How can I even get a little bit deeper into this and start really kind of biohacking my body and optimizing it as much as I can? Cause as you say, we are all so different. Um, what have you, um, what are some of the other genes that you um, look at in terms of, do you look at sort of methylation pathways and, Detoxification genes, because uh, I'm one of the books that I and his work I find actually almost makes it more complicated is the work of Dr. Ben Lynch in terms of dirty genes, because he very much seems of the opinion that actually your baseline genetics might say one thing, but a gene can become dirty, <laughs> so to speak. Um, I'm just curious for your thoughts around that.
0: Yeah, I think that that takes you back to the discussion around epigenetics and around if you are living a life that is not in line with health and wellness. So if you're not sleeping, you're stressed, you're eating a really Westernized diet full of just rubbish and you're not moving, then you're most probably going to have some really bad genes. Um, being expressed and, and that is going to lead to disease. Like that's the long and short of it. Um, again, I'm, I'm not in epigenetics, I'm in nutrigenomics. And so I just specifically look at those variations that alter someone's response to diet. And so I'm, you know, I think methylation's obviously one of the predominant you know, areas of epigenetics, but it's not something that right now I'm using in my practice. I'm still very focused on those actionable recommendations specifically around diet, um, that would lead to a clinical outcome. And I love your, your previous, you know, comment on motivation and how you feel like giving your clients the information about themselves is motivating them and also telling them to, you know, track things and how that also motivates. And, you know, it's not just our opinion, Angela, around how we see our patients being more motivated. It's also translated in the scientific literature that people are more motivated to make a change when they're given dietary recommendations through a regulated healthcare professional about their genetics. They're just more likely to make that change whether it comes to reducing their salt intake because they have that risk variation of the ACE gene that means that they have that salt sensitive hypertension, you know, that's powerful that those individuals are more likely to make that change based on that dietary advice that's that's specific to them, because those
1: are the individuals who need it most. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and on that, Gene, even... um, in relation to salt, is that because I've sort of read that more to be around processed, so processed foods, table salt that's had all of the minerals removed? Because actually, in terms of like remineralization, particularly if people are exercising, if they're sweating a lot, they're using sauna, then actually adding a bit of salt, like something like Redmond Real salt that's full mineral doesn't seem to be, it seems to be the process salts, doesn't it, and the um, table salt that has that impact. Is that what you've you found?
0: Well, I think that you make a really good point around what is someone doing on a day-to-day basis that would would impact their salt requirements. Mm. So if someone is exercising and sweating profusely on a day-to-day basis, then absolutely their salt requirements will be more. And so that's why it is important when using someone's genetic information to give dietary recommendations. It's so important that we're using the information as part of a puzzle, it's a piece of the puzzle because we have to take everything else into into consideration. So, if an individual wasn't doing that exercise and they had the risk variation of the ACE gene, then we would absolutely be recommending that they reduce their salt intake from these processed foods, from the table salt, but also other, you know, more mineralized salts as well, because it's still harmful to them as specifically. Um, whereas, for example, I have. Have people who are avid athletes and they love to work out—they have the variation of the gene, and so their requirements will differ based upon their um, their sweating and, and 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 real sodium loss. Because we would never want someone to be um, sort of deplete in that, as you as you know.
1: I, um, I find as well, it, it just cuts out the guesswork from my perspective, because I think, and I think that, as you say, helps with the adherence. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting down with, um, Andrew Steele from DNA fit and just talking to him and how when he missed out on a, on a medal, I think he was just, he, he was on the show and he was talking about how, you know, his training had been changed completely for four years in terms of, and admittedly he was in a really difficult, um, race length because it was one of those ones where, you know, with hundred meters, you can sprint all out, but with his, I forget if it was, I think it might've been 400, which is really hard to try and time to, um, because you can't go full pelt because you just won't then get round. Um, but his training was just so when he later looked at it was so mismatched with his genetics. And I think um, they found that one of the other athletes in the company, just the way he processed caffeine, caffeine, he instinctively knew he would just be so ill on it. He didn't tolerate it very well, but they were trying to use it in sport. And I think this is the thing is that you can actually target things so that people can get superior results more quickly and not miss out. And that's what we both see, isn't it? from the nutritional side, is it just takes that guesswork away.
0: Yeah. And I mean, how great is that? No more guesswork. Mm. I mean, that's what people spend their lives doing, trying to guess what diet they should be following for their desired outcome. It's it's an amazing field of science. And I just wish that more people would give it the recognition that it deserves and the respect as well. I mean, I was just talking about other practitioners and other scientists who do not maybe fully understand the science. And that's why they don't, don't feel comfortable to use it in their practice. And I think that more, more education needs to be in this space to actually inspire others to acknowledge the benefits the clinical benefits because let's be honest that's what we're that's what we're in the business of actually making people healthier and so absolutely you know you just touched upon the um the the, the guy that you had sorry well, Lost his name. Yeah. 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 Um, and how he felt it was, a, it was just such a powerful insight for him uh, to actually elevate his performance. And, and that's exactly what, what I see. And that's why, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the few years that I've been in, in private practice, I've taken it upon myself to get into the education space, to treat, teach other scientists, other practitioners about the science, how to use it safely. And, you know, I love lecturing in this subject. I love, um, I love that I'm putting together a training course at the moment for practitioners, nutrition professionals, also medics in the science of nutrigenomics. And yeah, I just can't wait to get the word,
1: get more of the word out there. Yeah, that's amazing. So you tell me about that. You're doing you obviously lecture with St. Mary's University, but you're now producing a program specifically for practitioners, are you for um, sort of nutritional therapists and doctors and health coaches to understand it better?
0: Absolutely. I think that there's so much misinformation out there about the science. And I believe that I am a well-read expert in the area when it comes to my education, when it comes to my research, my clinical practice. Um, I, I just feel like I have the tools to be able to inspire others and teach others. And, you know, I'm doing it at a university uh, level. So I, I should be able to kind of put together all of my insight into the science, the background and the safety and the precautions that need to be taken as well, kind of package it all up. And yeah, it's, a, it's an online program. So I'm really, really looking forward to to releasing that in the next couple of months.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. Um, And do you look at just before you go, do you look at um, this isn't an area that I've really looked into much in terms of genetics, but um, the um, kind of estrogen pathways and metabolism, do you look at that as well? Um, I know that there are some specific DNA tests now that are really focused on female health. Um, I'm just curious whether that's an area that you look at or teach on.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm just very honed in on my on my craft, which is nutrients and elevating one's health with those specific dietary recommendations around um, nutrigenomic data. I do not. Kind of dabble in that field of uh, endocrinology and and hormones. I, I I actually refer out to specialists for that. So yeah, it's a really exciting area, but not something that I personally deal with. And you know, women's health is is so so important. And I I support many many women through through their journeys, whether it be trying to lose weight with my you know online program, whether it be supporting them through pregnancy um all the way through you know to the later to the later years as well so i'm very passionate in it about it sorry and i have a few experts that help me because you know that's
1: not my field yeah yeah, it's not your focus. Um, well, it's been amazing to have you on the show and learn from you today. Um, I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed it as well. Do you want to share where people can find you on social, on your website, just and more so they can connect with you, Rachel?
0: Thanks so much, Angela, for having me. I mean, if anyone wants to learn more about me and the way that I really – help people achieve their best health through eating the DNA way. You can always find me on Instagram posting about all sorts to do with diet and nutrition and genetics at it's at the DNA dietitian. And then my website is the DNA dietitian.co.uk. I was going to say www dot, but no one uses that anymore. (laughs) Um, Um, and yeah, I'd be, I'd be more than welcome to take any questions if anyone wants to reach out and if anyone's interested in the practitioner training, they want to put themselves on the waiting list, or maybe someone wants to reach out about, um, my weight loss 12 week program that's being released in a few months based upon one's DNA and all of my tips and tricks from my private practice then you're also more than welcome to reach out. I'm really just grateful to, to spend this time with you, Angela, and also have a really rich conversation around
1: power of genetics. Yeah. Share a common interest in that. Well, thanks so much again for coming on the show. We will link to all of that in the show notes so people can connect with you. Um, it's been really lovely to have you here today.
0: Thank you so much again, Angela.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of High Performance Health. Um, you can find all of the show notes and everything that Rachel and I talked about, including how you can get in touch with Rachel um, over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. As always, I absolutely love it when you tag me on Instagram about the um, episode that you're listening to. So if you're listening to this episode and you've enjoyed it, please share it on your story and tag me um, or send me a direct message. I'm always in my DMs answering questions if anything's come up during this interview that you want to ask a question about and you can find my instagram over at angela s foster so that's at angela s foster on instagram and as i say i do personally answer all of my direct messages so feel free to send me a message there if you've got any questions on anything that we've covered on today's show and i will see you next week
0: thanks for listening remember to review and subscribe